good morning. Take out your copy of God's Word and turn it on, or <laughs> get it ready. Uh, if, you're, if you don't have a copy of God's Word this morning, uh, we welcome you to use the Pew Bible that is within your reach, we hope. Uh, you can turn to, I believe it's page 976, where you will find uh, the text that we'll be looking in, into this morning. Page 976, as we look into uh, God's Word in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to begin actually in verse 1 as we read through these verses that Paul wrote to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we want to ask God to help us as we dig into them this morning. Sacred Scripture says to us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray together. Thank You, Father, for gathering Your people together this morning. Help us now, Father, give attention to Your life-giving Word so that we may hear from You. We are so needy, and You are so generous. So we ask for grace this morning. For the sake of Christ and His glory, we pray these things. Amen. If you are visiting with us today, we certainly want to welcome you. Our pastor is away this morning, but he has been leading us through a series of messages through the prophet Isaiah, yet he took a time out from that series for the series that Kevin has already mentioned that we've been doing each week in October. As many of you may know, and if you're visiting with us, perhaps you may not know, as Kevin mentioned, to, mentioned earlier, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation will take place this month, and each Sunday we are dedicating a particular Sunday to a particular highlighted doctrinal statement within that Reformation. And this morning we are talking about sola gratia, grace alone. And what in the world does that mean for us? Christians love to sing about God's grace. We sing about it all the time, even when we may not even realize that that's what we're doing. 
Scripture gives us reason to do this as well, as you all know. For example, John tells us that out of Jesus' fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Many of the New Testament letters begin with the author beginning and ending with, with an expression of God's grace to be given to His people. The very last words of the Bible read to us, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The Bible is littered with references to grace and evidences of God's grace on nearly every page. So we sing songs like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing songs like Marvelous Grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. And it must exceed our sin and our guilt. Or a song we sang in my church growing up all the time, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Because we are celebrating the Reformation this month, I hope you will permit me perhaps an extended amount of time this morning to introduce this message with a Reformation emphasis. Brothers and sisters, you and I are saved by grace alone. If you are a Christian here this morning, you must relish in God's gift of salvation to you. You are saved by grace, by grace alone. God has been kind to us. We are undeserving of this kindness. The Reformers understood this. They understood that in order to understand the biblical doctrine of salvation, one must understand the biblical understanding of grace. We can't understand salvation if we don't understand grace. So what would a sermon on a Reformation theme be without a good quote from Brother Luther? Martin Luther said, and I quote him, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him, add sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. End quote. In the 1965 classic, The Sound of Music, perhaps you remember that scene where Maria is bewildered by Captain Von Trapp's affections toward her, his feelings, his sudden attraction to her. And she began singing. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, what's the next line? I must have done something good. It's a great movie. I was singing it this morning at the breakfast table because I knew I would mention it today in the sermon. And my wife, after me saying, I must have done something good in my childhood, my wife said, I doubt it. <laughs> I love her anyway. That statement portrays how you and I fool ourselves. That statement portrays to us that you and I, by nature, are convinced that there is in ourselves some way to save ourselves. That if good things happen, we must have had something to do with it. We must have earned it in some way, or we must be deserving of it in some way. 
We may even clothe that belief in religious tones to make it sound right. For example, we could believe that God needs to be involved in some way in our salvation. He has to in some way get inside of us and do the inner rehab work that needs to be done. Perhaps we could even say it like, if God will just show us the way, we'll get on the way and we'll get to the destination that the way will lead us to that God sort of laid out for us. Maybe an illustration will help. There's a story of a man who fell off of a cliff and on his way down, he managed to grab that one branch that's sticking out. And by grabbing the branch, he broke his fall, saving his life, but before long, he realized he could not pull himself back up to the top. So he finally calls out, is there anyone up there who can help me? And to his surprise, a voice boomed back, I am here, I can help you. But before you're going to get my help, you must first let go of that branch. Thinking for a moment about his options, the man looks back up and responds, is there anyone else up there who can help me? Left to ourselves, friends, we are looking for someone to save us by helping us save ourselves. That's who we are. We know we need to be saved. We know that inwardly. Something is wrong. We sense it. We know it. We may not be able to articulate it, but we know it. And yet we also are under the belief that we can do something about it. We have to have some part in it. Our hearts are, as St. Augustine so beautifully said, restless until they find their repose in God. So what do we do? We, we prop up counterfeit gods to find pleasure in, fulfillment in, and they never satisfy. So we go from one to another, one to another, and the created can never give us what the Creator only can. And we yearn and we yearn and we yearn. Many in the medieval church believed that God saved by grace. But they also believed that their own will and their cooperation with that grace was their part in God's salvific work. Like hanging on the branch. I have a part in it in some way. The popular medieval phrase was this, God will not deny His grace to those who do what they can. We say something similar to that today. God helps those who help themselves. Some mistakenly think that's a biblical phrase. It isn't. The word sola gratia means that human beings have no claim upon God. By insisting on grace alone, Luther and his, and his, uh, and his team and his other reformers were denying that human methods, human manipulation, human strategies in and of themselves could ever lead one to saving faith. You see, in the Reformation, the word gratia wasn't really the controversial word. The controversial word was sola. Everyone believed in grace. It's a beautiful word. It sounds very Christian-y. It sounds very churchy. It sounds like something that's the right thing to say, like a good Sunday school answer. Grace. The Catholic Church believed in grace, but they did not believe in grace alone. It was not a question of man's need for grace. Everyone agreed, man needs grace. The question is, and this is crucial, the question is, 
what is, what is the extent of that need? How bad are we? Do we cooperate in any way with God's extension of the gift of grace? The reformers pressed in here, and they pressed and they pressed and they pressed because they knew there is nothing we can give, there's nothing we can earn, there is nothing within us that God would look upon us and say, they've met my standard of goodness, I'll come the other way. Or they took a step forward, I'll do the rest of the work for them. The reformers came to realize we didn't fall off of a cliff and are barely hanging on. We fell off the cliff and were down at the bottom dead. And the only one who can bring us back to life is God Himself. Which leads us to our passage this morning. This, this theme shines brightly in our text this morning from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He ministered to them according to Acts chapter 20, three years, roughly three years with them. And it's clear Paul had a great love for these saints. He devoted himself to preaching the Word to them. He cared deeply for them. In the first chapter of Ephesians, uh, another wonderful text to just sort of linger in, relish in. In verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul takes us to what he calls the, the heavenly places. And with his inspired pen, he tells us what the Holy Trinity does for us. How the Father has elected sinners to salvation and the work of the Son to secure that salvation and to purchase that salvation and the role of the Spirit to apply it and guarantee that salvation. This is a lavish plan according to Paul. For he says in verse 3 that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3. God isn't stingy with His blessings. Above all, Paul stresses in chapter 1, God's hand in redemption. Just go back at some time and read verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. And what Paul does when he comes out of that huge praise session of what God has done, he then prays for them. Prays for these Ephesian believers that they would know God more. And in knowing God more, love Him more. And in loving Him more, serve Him more. He is yearning for them to know God. It's a beautiful prayer. You should read it at some point at the end of chapter 1, which leads to where we begin this morning. So if you're a note taker, here is the big idea that I want you to write down. You don't have to write this down, but I know a lot of you are note takers. So here's something to write down. The big idea that I want us to see in our text this morning is simply stated this way. We boast in our gracious God who raised us from the dead. We boast in our gracious God who raised us from the dead. And I want to show you how in that statement, all three points that we're going to see today are there. The first point we're going to see is who we were. The second thing we're going to see is what God has done. And the third thing we're going to see is who we are now. Very simple. I think you can see these points right in the text. And they're stated, if you will, couched in the terms of that big idea. We boast in our gracious God who raised us from the dead. So first notice with me, how, uh, who we once were. Who we once were. Brothers and sisters, please hear this today. 
God is not gracious to me or you simply because Jesus Christ died for me. Or to say that a different way, God does not become gracious because Jesus Christ died for me. Rather, Jesus Christ died for me because God is gracious to me. We have to make sure we're understanding ourselves here because our hearts are so deceitful and so warped by sin, we will make salvation about ourselves. We so badly want to keep our grips on this thing. And yet, Paul is about to rock our world in Ephesians chapter 2. So first, notice with me who we were. Verses 1 and 3 of chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This chapter, as I mentioned, follows that great prayer that Paul ends chapter 1 with. He is eager for them to know the immeasurable greatness of God and His power and His grace toward those who believe. And he even mentions the church and how the church is going to be the, the outward display, the visible thing you can see of God's grace. Our text this morning continues that theme, and we have to see how Paul does that. He wants them, and he wants us, by extension, to understand who we were prior to God intervening in our lives. Notice there are three answers to the question, who we were. Three answers. Answer number one, we were dead. We were dead. In verse one, he says it plainly. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. This is the human condition. Friends, it's not that we're merely sick, and if we find the right potion, we'll be better. Paul is not simply saying we took the wrong turn in life. We need to find a good roadmap to get us back to the destination from which we departed. The issue is not that we misread life's instructions and a good guide could sort of clean us up, if you will. No, Paul is saying that without Jesus Christ, you and I are flatlined, unresponsive, spiritual death. I love how Piper says this in his sermon on this text. It's not that we're in the spiritual doghouse because we broke a few rules. We're in the morgue, spiritually dead because of our own sin. Brothers and sisters, Paul is highlighting for us the powerlessness of who we are as a result of sin. There's nothing as hopeless as death, is there? I don't know that another analogy would quite convey what Paul is trying to get at here than death itself. Death is hopeless, doesn't it seem? It's what makes our grief so overwhelming when someone we really love is gone from us. We don't have the power to resuscitate them. There's something very final and absolute about a corpse. Life is gone. And that's exactly Paul's point. Spiritually speaking, apart from Christ, we're a corpse. That is who, our, that is who we are and that is what our spiritual state is without grace. 
We were dead in trespasses and sins, unable to alleviate our death or to satisfy in some way our God. I have never watched the show. In fact, I'll just put it this way. In my paper, when I tell students, when students are writing papers for me at GCU, I remind them all the time, please use good sources. Please use academic sources. Stay away from the internet. Especially stay away from Wikipedia. Wiki is icky is what I always say. Wiki is icky. Stay away. I broke my own rule last night. I've never watched The Walking Dead. Don't ever intend to, especially after I spent about 30 seconds reading what the show is about. I have no desire to watch a show about zombies. But that's what the show is apparently about. Perhaps you're an expert. You can talk to someone about it later. But the idea behind the show is there are just walking dead people, these zombie-like creatures. And there's, I don't even know. I don't know what they're doing. But I guess they're doing something that makes you watch because they keep renewing the seasons. <laughs> That's who we are, folks. We're the walking dead. There's nothing in us that can change it. Who were we? We were dead in our sins. Number two, who were we? We were enslaved to our sin. Paul isn't done. He presses in more. Our spiritual death leads to and is seen in our bondage. Now, this is going to sound really strange to you. It sounds strange to me when my human ears hear this. But if we read Paul rightly, the spiritual death sentence on all of humanity is an active death. It's a busy death. It's a living death. What do I mean by that? Notice how he says that in our spiritual death, we are still operating. Notice how he says that we are following the course of the world. There's an operative nature to our dead spiritual hearts. We are still active. We are still doing things. And the things that we are doing are according to the course of the world. There's a continuity, if you will, between who we are spiritually and the world we are living in. The course of this world, according to Paul, acts, if you will, as the governor the controlling thing in the lives of those who are spiritually dead. The world holds sway. If you are not a Christian here today, dear friend, one of the greatest evidences of you not being a Christian in your own life is that the world sets your agenda. Because that's exactly what happens to those who are in spiritual death. They're following a pattern that's evidenced in a world the world holds sway. And Paul doesn't take his foot off the pedal, does he? He presses in even more. Notice, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a sobering indictment on all of us regarding who we once were if we are Christians here this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, behind the moral decay of our society, behind the chaos of our sin-saturated world is a malicious God-hater, Satan himself, and apart from grace, we are dead, yet our death is active, and what we are actively doing is undermining God and doing Satan's bidding. He is signing our paychecks. And we don't need on-the-job training from Him. Our own nature gives us everything we need to do His work. 
And just we, in case we are confused, Paul presses in more. Verse 3, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Think of it this way, friends. Follow this in your mind. There are two great external powers in the world right now that hold sway over the lives of unbelievers. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, wake up to the reality that that there are two controlling things in your life right now. Number one, there's the world, a world that is corrupted by sin. And number two, there is Satan and his, his working and his dealing But what Paul is doing here now is in addition to these two external forces, there's an internal thing going on that is in cooperation with the world and Satan. In theological terms, we refer to this as the flesh, this shorthand for our nature. The ontological reality of the fact that we are by nature sinners. It's not just something we do on our bad day or in traffic when we're trying to get to work in the morning. It's who we are in our essence. Every part of you is in sin and is sinful. And that inner reality of who you are is in cooperation with the world and Satan. And when you put all that together, there is no hope in us. Think of how, think of this contrast. Just listen carefully. You can go look at these texts later. Romans 3, 9-12. through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good. No, not even one. Without Christ, that's who we are. Inside, in cooperation with the world and Satan. No inclination to seek God. Contrast that, Romans 3, with Romans 6, verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Dear friends, until the Savior sets us free, we are slaves of sin. What does this lead to? Number three, the third answer to our first question, who were we? We were dead. We were enslaved. And number three, we are condemned. We are condemned. Verse 3 again. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is a sobering, sobering indictment on all of us who think really highly of ourselves. Some of you might even be thinking to yourself, I'm not nearly as bad as this other guy I'm thinking of at the moment. I'm not nearly as terrible as fill in the blank, some person on television or some person who did this or that. Not nearly as bad as they are. And the very admission in your mind that you're thinking that way is evidence that the fact that you're not only as bad as them, you might even be worse. Because you're deceived into thinking you have something to offer 
that would make you greater than another sinner apart from Christ. We're bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. There is no branch to hang on to. And even if there were, we don't have the power to reach out and grab it. Jesus said in John 3 that if we don't believe in Him, we're condemned already. We are beyond self-help. It's a terrible picture. Ephesians 1, pardon me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is a terrible picture. It's looking ourselves straight in the mirror. And not the mirror you see at the circus. The mirror of God's Word that doesn't lie to us, shoots us straight. This is who you are apart from Christ. But thanks be to God, it doesn't stop there. There is hope. There is hope. Which leads to our second point this morning. What has God done? What has God done for those who can't do anything? We were dead. We were enslaved in bondage to sin. We were condemned justly by a holy and righteous God. What has God done? Number two, let's read there in verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the whole gospel is wrapped up in those two words. But God. Do you see those two words there? You you need to really laser-like focus your eyes on God's intervention in our spiritual death and misery and bondage and condemnation. But God. There is hope in those two words. Sin rules the territory of our hearts like a ruthless dictator telling us what to do and we obey, leading us in directions we don't need to go, doing everything in our minds to convince us that we're not as bad as we really are, but God intervenes. We are slaves to our passions, to our appetites, slaves to a world with its twisted ethics, but God intervenes. The dreadful combination of Satan's schemes, our world, our dead heart, leaves us hopeless, but God breaks in and does a great... What happens here? What happens with the but God phrase? What happens? I I think the best way to look at it is, or imagine it in your mind is, God turns on the heavenly light switch. That's what happens. By the way, that's the exact image. I love how Paul does this. I I need to see pictures. I like books with pictures in them, right? I like to see, I like to see, I like for Paul, I like for somebody to draw me a picture. I want to understand. I conceptualize things really well that way. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, he uses this image, right? That Satan has blinded us. We can't see God. We don't want to see God. And even if we could see Him, or even if we did want to see Him, it would be a God made in our own image. 
that would do what we wanted him to do. Satan has done this blinding work. So here's the image Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4. God turns on the light in that darkness, and when he turns on the light in that darkness, we see, we see God. We see Christ and our need for him. And all of those puppet gods we raised up to find our satisfaction in go away because now we've beheld the king of glory. That's what happens when but God happens. Death is brought to life by the power of God. This is amazing. This is so amazing that God brings light into the darkness. I think, and you know where I'm going, those of you I work with, we have to go there, right? We have to go to John 11. I think the, the perfect demonstration of this is Lazarus himself, right? Doesn't Lazarus sort of picture for us in a physical way, what happens to us in a spiritual way, if you'll remember, Jesus had returned from Bethany at the request of a dead man's family, his sisters. Jesus was told that a man named Lazarus was dead and had been dead for four days. So dead he was that he was already decomposing. In fact, they even say to him, I'm quoting verse 39, but Lord, said Martha, oh Martha, by this time there's going to be a bad odor. He's been dead for four days. What a graphic description of who we are. We stink apart from Christ. It's stench. We are decomposing. There was nothing anyone could do for Lazarus. His situation was not merely grim or serious. He wasn't on life support. The doctor on house couldn't have done anything for him. Jesus prays and he says, Lazarus, come out. John 11, verse 43. And the call of Jesus brought life to that dead man. Just as the voice of God brought the entire universe into existence. And just as God intervened in your life and brought light to your darkness. But God, what happens when God breaks into our spiritual death? What happens? I know we just read the text, but how can we sort of summarize it in one phrase? Union with Christ is what happens. Uh, we could say a lot of different things, but I just want to sort of throw it all in the bucket of union with Christ. What happens when God intervenes into our spiritual death, our spiritual slavery, our spiritual condemnation? When God intervenes, He unites us with Christ. Look at verse 5 again. When we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises us up and seats us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There, that, that, just that phrase alone, that verse alone is worth spending the rest of the afternoon thinking about. The timing is crucial. Did you notice the timing here in all of these statements? Notice it carefully. While we were dead, he came in and turned on the light switch. Paul says that in Romans 5.8 as well. right? Same thing he's saying there. When we were powerless, helpless, he saved us. He came in and did the work for us. He burst in upon our spiritual hearts and he gives life. The great reversal of our spiritual death is a work of God and God alone. More than that, there's something going on here. Do you see the resurrection language in that? Right? He raises us up. Do you even see the ascension language there? 
and seats us in the heavenly places. It's sort of a, everything that God has done in Christ, He's doing in us. Resurrecting us. Taking us to even His own presence. We are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, He says. Notice, again, we began in chapter 2, verse 1. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's who you used to be, dear Christian. Dead in your trespasses and sins. But God intervenes, and in Christ, you've been resurrected to life. No wonder Paul could pray and praise God and all that wonderful, that lengthy section in chapter 1, verse 3 and on. We are in Christ and united to Christ. Do you want to know how amazing God is this morning? There are lots of things we could say, right? Yes, He hears the, the cry of the brokenhearted. That's true. Yes, He's faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9. That, that's so true. Yes, He is powerful. I mean, we could say a billion things about our God right now, but just hear this. You need to be encouraged this morning. God brings life to death. If you will allow just that statement alone to ramrod your heart this morning, to jolt you back into the love and devotion you should have for your king, rest on that. God bringing life to death. Why does he do it? It's a legitimate question, right? What's the motivation behind God working on our behalf? You know, if we're honest, a lot of times we are motivated to do something for others for a benefit we see down the road, right? There, there's something we might can get out of it in the end. Even on our best day, right? Even on our best day when we're real, you might have just had your quiet time and somebody calls, right? And you might do what they want and in your mind you might think, I can get something and you know, they'll babysit for me one day, right? I'll do it, yeah, they'll, they'll babysit for me one day. Or yeah, I can, yeah, okay, he'll... Okay, it'll be payback. So we, we naturally just do that. So let's just ask the question, what is God's motivation here? Is, is he finally going to be happy? Is that the issue? Is God unhappy? Is he dissatisfied? Is that why he never sleeps? Is that what's going on here? Why would God do this? Verse 4, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Why did God do it? He did it because of love and mercy. God loves us with love. What a beautiful gift He gives to us. He loves us with love. He fixed His love on you and He made you His. You were hopeless and helpless and His eyes were on you. And He's going to glorify His name by doing something for you it can only be done by His grace. That's why He does it. He moves in your direction because of His love and mercy with which He loved you and I. Verse 5 and verse 8 say the same thing, right? By grace you have been saved. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You don't get to brag here. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Grace is entirely a gift it's generated by God. It is desired by God. It is wrought by God. You are the recipient, not the participatory person in it. 
You receive it. It's grace alone. It's grace alone. You can't earn it, buy it, merit it. You can't make yourself worthy of it. You can't be better tomorrow and sort of improve your report card. God must save you or you can't be saved. God must do it or it won't be done. Look at the text again. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. Dear friends, if if you haven't heard much this morning, please hear this. Salvation from beginning to end is a gracious work of God. It's all a gift. The grace that moves Him to you and the faith you have to respond to Him. It's all a gift. It's all a gift to dead sinners when God intervenes for us. We are saved by grace, Paul says, and we are saved by God's divine favor. Uh, Just scouring, I I tried to scour yesterday just some of my old systematic books I haven't looked through uh, lately because of busyness. Just being reminded again of Bob Inc.'s treatment of this, read Grudem for a moment, read just different theologians just sort of with the best they can do with their pen, just magnifying how gracious God is to us in his salvation grace carries with it just scouring those grace carries with it the idea of benevolence being bestowed on someone without that person having a cause for it without that person having merited it or working for it god was not required to save you friends you've not done a god you've not done god a favor by believing in him you have to know that right we haven't done him a favor We didn't decide to wake up. I think I'll do something for God today. I'm going to believe in Jesus. He did not have to, but because in love he wanted to raise up dead to life. And in doing so, the life he gives to those who are dead will praise and sing his praises. They will work out the grace that he has brought to them. Solo gratia stresses the initiative of God himself in salvation as the one who must change our hearts because we are powerless to do so. Sola gratia speaks to our inability. What do we have to offer God? Nothing. Not a thing. The only thing we have to offer God is a stinky corpse that is condemned, enslaved, dead. We are Lazarus. When God by grace gives us grace, we believe by grace. It's all a gift. It's all grace. No wonder we sing so much about it. In our fallen condition, we are dead, unable to conform to the Lord's will, both inwardly and outwardly. That's verse 1 again. We want nothing to do with God in our human nature, our unredeemed nature, and God intervenes on our behalf. What has God done? God has saved us and united us to Christ as a gift of His own will, His own pleasure, seeing nothing in us that would cause Him to do so. It was surely out of love and mercy that our great God has intervened on our behalf. So who are we now in Christ? That's the third question that we need to ask. Who were we? We were dead in sin. We were in bondage to sin. We were condemned by sin. What has God done? He has united us to Christ as a gracious gift. We believe, we have faith in God, which too is a gift. 
So who are we now? Verse 10 is where we need to focus for just a moment. What does God do with those whom He saves? We are His workmanship, it says here, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, That word works is just sort of jumping off the page, isn't it? Our works condemned us apart from Christ. God works for us in Christ. And the work God does for us in Christ, in us, is to outwardly work from in us, if that makes sense. God comes, our only hope is outside of us, external. Our biggest problem is us. So God comes in and He redeems us for that redeeming action to be seen by others. We are His workmanship. That was the work we once did, sin. Now the work we are to do is righteousness. God has intervened. He has created us anew in Jesus Christ. He has given us life. We are on a different highway now. We're not barely hanging on. No, we were dead. And God gave us life. And now we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Dear friends, when God saves us, He saves us for activity. There's no coasting in the Christian life. Pew-sitting is not a spiritual gift. The evidence that grace has invaded your heart and your life and your mind is that you are serving the God who has saved you. Children of God saved by grace are saved to serve. Saved to serve others. We who have been shown mercy will show mercy. We who have been given grace will extend grace. We are now to be an instrument of grace in all sorts of ways as redeemed children of God. Dear friend, we have to remember these things. I was reading just through Peter, 2 Peter the other day, and I love how Peter says, while I'm in this body, I think it's right that I stir you up by way of reminder. I just sort of stopped and paused. Why, why does Peter even have to say this? Because God's people have a way of forgetting what God has done for them. Peter says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. By the way, if you still have Ephesians 2 open, just look there. Look at the very next verse. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember. (laughs) Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. What is it? I mean, right after Paul talking to us about who we were, what God's done, and what God is going to do through us, why does he even have to remind us to remember? Because we forget. That's why. We neglect this knowledge. We get so lazy, if you will, spiritually lazy, that we forget that God did not save us to sort of put us on the shelf as something to be observed. He saved us to put us into the world to do His will. To do whatever, by His grace, He calls us to do. Wherever He leads, we'll go. We'll only say that if we've been saved. And we'll only say that if we remember who we once were. God saves us to use us as an instrument. Think of instruments. Instruments that are active, being used by the power of the Spirit to give grace to others in ways that we can, but really to demonstrate who sent the instrument. 
Who is it that's working in and through these people? Dear friends, we boast in, that's what we do as uh, being redeemed, we boast in our gracious God who raised us from the dead and in doing so has brought us life. Dear friends, we have been saved for service. May you, dear Christian, be captured again. May your heart be inflamed, your whole soul, with a new passion to serve your gracious God who has, from eternity, had His love set on you. And from all eternity, determined to save you in Christ. And for all eternity, desires to use you for the praise and glory of His name. May we, dear church family, embrace the sheer reality that God isn't finished with us. And as His workers, we would get to work magnifying our great Lord. Which means we have to remember where we came from. And we have to remember what God has done to be effectively working on His behalf. And if you're here today without Christ, you you must be uncomfortable Because we don't like it when truth hits us right between the eyes. We don't like being told that we can't do anything for God to save us. We don't like being told we can't show our list of accomplishments and get something out of it. We don't like being told that we are dead in sin. We don't like being told that we're enslaved to sin. We don't like being told that we are under the just wrath of a God. We don't like that. But dear friend, that's not where the story ended, is it? God intervenes. You have nothing to offer, and He extends grace. Would you receive Christ today? If you do, you'll know God was behind the whole thing. God brought you to this point where you believed in His Son. Would you believe in Him today? Let's pray together. God, I thank You for Your church. May we be strengthened today in remembrance of who we once were apart from Christ. May we we be stirred again to praise and honor You who has brought death, brought life to our death. God, we do thank You that You have united us to Christ. You've raised us up. You've taken us to the heavenly places in Him. We are secure in Him by the power of Your Spirit. And You've called us to be Your workers with works You've prepared for us. Each day is another day to seek what You have prepared for us to do for Your glory. God, if there are those today in this room without Christ, would You, would you turn on the heavenly light switch into their darkness? Would You help them see the beauty of Christ and run to Him? We are so in need of grace, Father. All of us in the room, we're so in need of grace. Thank You, Father. You're so generous. You're so kind. Thank you for all you've done for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.